The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Alexis Temkin. She is a toxicologist with the Environmental Working Group, where her areas of focus include water and toxic chemicals, including pesticides and PFAS chemicals. Dr. Temkin began her research career at Columbia University Medical Center in New York, working as a lab technician studying the molecular mechanisms responsible for environmental influence on gene regulation. As a doctoral student, she studied how exposure to environmental chemicals during development can influence adult obesity and metabolic syndrome. Dr. Temkin received her Ph.D. in Marine Biomedicine and Environmental Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina. And today we're going to be focusing on the Environmental Working Group's new Dirty Dozen report and why it's critical to feeding our families well and protecting farm worker health and our environment. Dr. Temkin is one of the lead authors of this report. Welcome, Dr. Temkin. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Well, I'm very curious about how you became interested in toxicology. I personally am very interested in the study of toxins and how they affect human health as well as our environment. Yeah, I am trying to think if I can remember that real inception point. I think it was actually when I was studying abroad at Queensland University in Australia, and I actually remember being in a class that was talking about marine biomedicine. And I was like, what is this? And usually it was sort of this way of studying drug discovery from natural products. So I was always interested in this sort of natural and environmental world. And then when I actually got to the Medical University of South Carolina, I was introduced to all these different researchers I could work with. And one of them was Lou Gillette, who was this really incredible scientist in the field of endocrine disruption. And he was just such a captivating scientist, had money for a graduate student, and after that, I was really just hooked and wanted to be part of this really important research on how environmental chemicals can contribute to really this epidemic of chronic disease we're facing. And that's what took you to South Carolina. Yeah, exactly. It was just this really incredible graduate program that linked chemistry with medicine, with environmental and marine science. It was a dream place to go to school, to be honest. I loved it. It's so interesting that you mention that because I interviewed Lou Gillette many years ago. He was a speaker at a Beyond Pesticides forum. And like you, I was so interested in what he was studying. He presented a special water toxicology session looking at how nitrates in water affect the endocrine system. So I was sold too. And then his wife, I believe, also studied how pesticides affected brain development in a population of children in Mexico. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I love hearing people's stories, people I've never met before, but they know 
Lou Gillette, and he's the type of person who really has touched several people and got them excited about this research and then also really concerned for public health. Yeah, and sadly, he passed away. But I'm so glad to know of, of that connection. And I think you bring up a really good point about learning about the effects of these chemicals and the way that the Dirty Dozen report has been framed by the agricultural chemical industry as promoting fear. And I believe that if you study the effects of these pesticides on children in particular, as well as our environment, I don't know what other feelings I would describe, and especially when farm workers are exposed to these chemicals. So how would you describe the rhetoric by those who want to use pesticides in the food system when they see your report and say negative things about it? I would say it's really contrary to the messaging that the Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce, which is the name of this full report, which includes the Dirty Dozen, it's really contrary to the messaging of the report in general and also the messaging around a lot of the work that EWG does. So we're talking specifically about pesticides, but we have a lot of research in personal care products, in drinking water contaminants, and it has always been designed around taking these complicated scientific questions on exposure, on health and translating them into guides, actions, recommendations that consumers can take to really feel empowered about the choices that they're making and also impact policy sort of on the side of that. So the goal of the Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce has always been a way for consumers to eat a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables, get a lot of fruits and vegetables in their diet, without compromising on pesticide exposure and the potential health effects that might come from that. And I think it makes it very clear that so many of the produce items we see in the supermarket don't just have one pesticide residue on them, but multiple residues. And you can probably speak to the toxicology of the synergistic relationships of these pesticide residues in combination Yeah, exactly. So that's a really fundamental point of what we call real-world exposures. So often, at least in the regulatory space where these pesticides are being evaluated for safety, they're looked at kind of in a silo, like in isolation. You're looking at one pesticide at a time, really. But if you take a strawberry sample, that strawberry might have up to 20 different pesticides on it. And some of these crops that you find on the Dirty Dozen, like peppers, for instance, have over 100 different pesticides detected on all of those samples. So it's not just one sample, but you could have 100 different pesticides across all of those different peppers. And so what we know from toxicological studies in animals and some in humans is that often when you have mixtures of chemicals together, the safe dose becomes a lot lower because they have additive effects or synergistic effects. And it's really an evolving area of research, but an incredibly important one because that's what our reality is every day. It's chronic low-dose exposure to mixtures of pesticides and other chemicals as well. Exactly. Do you want to talk about the process of how the annual Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 reports are generated? Yeah, I would be happy to. 
So what's really unique about the data that we use to put these reports together is that it actually comes from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's pesticide data program. We have a little bit of data from the FDA, but the majority of it is from the USDA. And they have this really great program where every year they go out and sample thousands. I mean, this is a lot of samples of fruits and vegetables. And then they analyze each sample for hundreds of different pesticides. So it's a really robust data set. There's 46 different fruits and vegetables that we look at. So not every fruit and vegetable is tested every year, but we always use the most recent data. So with that PDP data, we then use six different metrics to look at pesticide contamination. So we look at the percent of samples with detectable pesticides, the percent of samples that have two or more, the average number of pesticides found on a single sample. So that's getting at the question of mixtures, again, in multiple residues. The average amount of pesticides found, so getting into concentration or how much of the pesticides are there, the maximum number of pesticides found on a single sample, and then the total number of pesticides found on a crop. So we use all of these to then rank the 46 fruits and vegetables, which give you the dirty dozen, the top 12 with the most, and then the clean 15 the 15 that have the least amount of pesticide residue. So I'm curious to know about the clean 15. Does that mean that we can assume that those particular items are sprayed less or that they just tend to carry less residue onto the market shelf? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's probably a combination of both. But at least what we can say with this data set is that for whatever reason, whether it's less pesticide application, whether it is the tough outer shell that you see on some of these, you know, avocado is at the top of that list. That shell might prevent the pesticides from penetrating into the fruit that people actually eat. But we do know that these fruits and vegetables are going to be low in pesticide residue. So almost 70% of the samples for the Clean 15 had no detectable residue at all. That's great. Yeah. But the dirty dozen are really dirty. Yeah. So the dirty dozen samples, more than 90% of the samples of strawberries, apples, cherries, spinach, nectarines, and then other leafy greens had residues of at least two pesticides. Mm. So not only are you talking about a high frequency of detection of a single pesticide, but also of multiple residues. Right. Well, there are a couple of counterpoints that we typically hear. One is that the residues that are found, we're told, are within legal limits. What do you say to that? Yeah, so that definitely is true, which is good to note. But the problem with that is that legal doesn't necessarily mean safe. So the legal standards, what are called maximum residue limits or MRLs, set for pesticides on crops are usually set to basically mimic the maximum amount of pesticide that could be on that sample. So often you don't even get that high, but they're really based more on agricultural practices than they are about safety, especially when you start considering some of the impacts that we've seen for pesticides on human health and particularly children's health. So the consideration of sort of children's more vulnerable and susceptibility to pesticides, and then also some of these health effects like 
endocrine disruption or really harming children's neurodevelopment aren't necessarily considered when setting those legal standards. Right. And again, they're never tested for chronic long-term exposure, nor are they tested for those synergies, nor are they tested with the inert ingredients that are also found in the pesticides. So for example, with something like glyphosate in a product like Roundup, there will be glyphosate plus quote-unquote inert ingredients that enable the toxin to enter the plant more easily. It's my understanding that the safety testing does not include those quote-unquote inert ingredients. Yeah, so you actually just touched on kind of a whole bunch of points about what we would love to see change about the way pesticides are regulated uh, within this country. But one of them is definitely, yeah, this non-distinction really between active ingredients, so that's like we're talking about the pesticide like glyphosate or chlorpyrifos, those are kind of two pesticides people know, and the mixture of what's actually in the product that's applied. And that also draws a lot of issues, not necessarily for dietary exposure, but really also for workers' health and environment. So sometimes what we've seen is that, like you said, with glyphosate, the other inert ingredients that help the plants uptake the active ingredient can also make it more bioavailable to humans and make the toxicity of that ingredient a little bit more potent. Mm-hmm. Dr. Tamkin, let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I just need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Dr. Alexis Temkin. She is a toxicologist with the Environmental Working Group and one of the lead authors in the Environmental Working Group's new Dirty Dozen report. And we are looking specifically at pesticide residues on produce, which produce samples have the most and the least residues, and the multiple ramifications of that finding. I want to talk about toxicity, especially because you are a toxicologist. And what I've been told by my friends in biology who study endocrine disruptors is that this idea that the dose makes the poison is relatively outdated today because what we've learned through research in endocrine disruption is that even really tiny doses may be more biologically active than higher doses. Tell me from a toxicology perspective what this dose makes the poison really means or doesn't. I definitely agree with a lot of those colleagues, and that's where I started a lot of my research was in the endocrine disruption field. And that certainly is the rhetoric and sort of old guard thinking of toxicology that if an effect doesn't happen at a really high dose, then there's no way it could possibly be harmful at a low dose. What we've learned from particularly the field of endocrine disruption is that that's really not the case. You might not see this really linear dose response curve. There might be a higher activity at the low end of it. It might start low, get high in the middle, and then get low at the higher doses again. And that's one of the big problems with regulatory toxicology and the studies that a lot of the safe levels of pesticides are designed to be tested on. So when a pesticide is registered and submitted to the EPA, along with that is a bunch of toxicology data from the registrant. You know, these are the manufacturers that are submitting data. And those studies are designed to test high doses and look at certain effects. Then what we often see is when low doses and different effects are studied, usually by academic researchers, the doses that are safe are usually much lower. 
the health effects are usually a little bit different and more concerning, more focused on children's health. And so that's just not really built into the regulatory process. Yeah, it's so interesting. And as we learn more about how these different chemicals work, we can see that we need to rethink some of the way we used to think about toxins. Well, the other thing that we're told in the consumer marketplace is, oh, if there are residues there, just wash the produce off. But from this report, I'm learning that the USDA's testing does test already washed produce. Yeah, so I think it's kind of a both and type scenario. I would definitely recommend washing produce because that will get rid of some pesticide residue. So it's likely that the pesticide residue on unwashed produce is going to be higher. But you're exactly right that the data used to generate this report comes from samples that have been washed, that have been peeled, and What is represented is really the pesticides that are within the fruit or vegetable. So it's called systemic exposure. And washing fruits and vegetables will help get rid of some of it, but certainly not all the pesticide residue. I think this is really important for consumers to know. One of the reasons why I've been paying attention to this report and pesticides in general is because of farm worker health. And I think that we too often put our focus on our own personal plates without thinking about how our behaviors can affect other populations or the larger environment. I don't know how much time you've spent looking at farm worker populations, but I I have seen data on birth defects resulting from women who have been working in the fields and have been sprayed while pregnant. Do you want to talk at all about how some of these pesticides harm the neurological development of children and even their physical development. Yes, I think a good example of this is probably the pesticide chlorpyrifos. And it's this organophosphate pesticide that is used on a variety of crops and was actually just banned by the EPA in 2021. And there was a lot of controversy around this pesticide. Really, it was about five years ago or so the EPA scientists said, you know, this is actually really harmful for kids' neurodevelopment. We should prohibit its use. And then there was lobbying and back and forth, and it ended up being on the market for much, much longer until this EPA said, enough is enough. We're not using this pesticide anymore. And unfortunately, a lot of the evidence on neurodevelopment and the impact on children's developing brain came from cohorts and studies of farm worker populations. So whether this was from women who were exposed occupationally or farm worker families who were exposed because they live close to fields, or there's this what's called the take-home pathway where people are working in the fields or working with pesticides, they take them home with them, whether it's on clothes or shoes, and that can lead to increased exposure in children and other family members. And so that's where a lot of this data on the really harmful effects of this pesticide, chlorpyrifos, and several others actually come from. So there's really a disparate burden of exposure and health harms for farm workers and communities that are living close to these agricultural operations. I like to frame this report as protect your family and farm workers and children and other communities. It's not just about ourselves. It's about so much more. And I thought it was interesting. One of the pieces of rhetoric that we often hear about the U.S. food system is, oh, it's the safest in the world. When in actually what I learned is that 
Many pesticides still legally used in the United States have been banned in the EU because of the science showing threats to human health and wildlife. Yeah, so the pesticides that are regulated in the European Union have a bit more of a precautionary approach and a little bit stricter regulations when it comes to human and environmental health. But you're exactly right that several of those pesticides that are banned, chlorpyrifos was one of them that was banned in the European Union much sooner than it was banned here. Similarly, neonicotinoid insecticides, several of them are banned in the European Union for outdoor use due to their harms on bees and other pollinators, but they're still widely used here for outdoor agricultural practices. So the consideration for human health, as well as the ability for pesticides to contaminate drinking water supplies is really considered a little bit more heavily in other places than in the United States. And yes, you'll see banned pesticides elsewhere that are still used here. Well, I thought it was interesting. There is a pediatrician on the board of Beyond Pesticides. And I too serve on that board. And it's a wonderful organization. And I'll provide a link to that as well as the Environmental Working Group's link. But he said that the American Academy of Pediatrics actually has a research document and a policy statement that says organic foods are better for children. What would you say about choosing organic foods Yeah, so I'm glad we're going to get into this because it's an important topic. So for the Dirty Dozen, we recommend buying organic options of those varieties of fruits and vegetables. And really, if it's available to buy organic varieties whenever possible. But part of the reason for that is that we know from studies, either clinical trials or on different cohorts of people, that when you switch from a conventional diet to an organic diet, you see really rapid reductions in pesticide concentrations. So that's usually measured in urine samples collected from people before and after the diet. So it is a way, there's definitely documentation that those concentrations and detections decrease from switching to an organic diet. There's also more evidence coming out that an organic diet is linked to reductions in risk of cancer, obesity, and diabetes. So we're starting to see the connections between health and organic diets. And I also think it's interesting how specific pesticides are measured and regulated. So for example, I'm aware that with glyphosate, it was the industry that lobbied the Environmental Protection Agency to allow higher levels of residues on foods. And I'm wondering how much of this goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, so I know a little bit about that for glyphosate and oats in particular, which is sort of a subpart pesticide report that we did in addition to our work on the Dirty Dozen, largely because glyphosate is not included in the pesticide data program, and it has to do really with the cost of measuring that pesticide, and that it's not often found in fruits and vegetables, it's found in other commodities like oats or wheat or certain types of corn. So basically what happens, and this goes back to sort of that MRL I was talking about and how it's based on agricultural practices. So with oats and glyphosate, there was this increase in this practice of what's called desiccation, where you actually use glyphosate to kill oats or wheat at the end of the harvest to make the harvest uniform. So you're drying out the crop and you're harvesting it by the use of glyphosate. And that led to higher levels of glyphosate in those crops. And so the manufacturers or agricultural companies said, you know, we need higher levels of this allowed on because of this practice. And so then EPA approved that use. 
but definitely how that can happen is changing agricultural practices to allow more pesticides on certain fruits and vegetables. And then what does it mean if a pesticide is registered? Does that somehow indicate safety? So all pesticides for them to be used need to be registered through the EPA and registered for certain uses. So that means it's gone through EPA's process of registration review, which happens for a pesticide every 15 years. So when there's a new pesticide registration process, a company will submit its data to support it. EPA will do its review, set the tolerable limits, and then that pesticide can be used, and then it'll be reviewed 15 years later. So there's a big gap in the amount of time between pesticide registration reviews. And, you know, we've talked about some of those problems with the registration review process, like relying on data from pesticide companies that are often about high doses, not often considering the studies that come from epidemiological studies indicating harm in human populations. So there's definitely ways that that process can be approved, but it is a pretty strict regulatory process that we currently have. I'm just disappointed that the industry has so much influence over what's considered safe or not in terms of residue levels. I wish that the agencies that were designed to protect us would only use non-biased research where there wasn't an industry interest. Yeah, it is definitely a policy that we would love to see changed in the way a lot of these laws are written and that there's less influence from industry. And a lot of other people have have reported on this quite well. But I agree with you. It's quite alarming how much industry influence there is. You know, even with this chlorpyrifos, which I was just mentioning, which was banned in April, the producers of fruits and vegetables and manufacturers of these products still sent letters to EPA saying, this is going to affect our crops, this is going to affect our bottom line, trying to allow the use of this pesticide that we know is harming children's health. So thankfully, the EPA ignored those claims and suggestions, and the ban is still moving forward. Right. Dr. Temkin, we just have a minute left, and I want to give you a chance to leave our listeners with anything that I might have neglected to bring forth from this report. We covered a lot, and this was really great, but I'll just end with that the Shopper's Guide to Pesticide and Produce is designed for consumers to eat a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables without having the risk of pesticide exposure. So the Dirty Dozen list, we recommend buying organic. But the Clean 15 is a list of really great fruits and vegetables that are going to be low in pesticide residue, even through conventional agricultural practices. So it's a great option to choose for families. And the website for this shopper's guide is www.ewg.org backslash food news. And then I also want to mention that you have some great short videos. One of them has to do with endocrine disrupting fungicide residues on citrus, which though citrus fruits were not included in either the Dirty Dozen or the Clean 15. So they lie somewhere else, but still they are of concern because of those fungicide residues. Yeah, exactly. That was based on some testing we did, I think, last year, looking at two fungicides, which are applied after the crop is harvested to prevent any fungus from growing during transport or during storage. But even after peeling, they can get inside the fruit. 
All right. Well, unfortunately, we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Alexis Temkin, toxicologist with the Environmental Working Group, and she is one of the lead authors of the Environmental Working Group's new Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 report. Thank you so much for your time and your work. Thank you.